You know, when the light shines the brightest, the forces of darkness come out of the shadows and do everything they can to quench the light. We saw that take place at the birth of Jesus. When Herod was told of the star that was leading the Magi to the birthplace of the promised king, he slaughtered all the baby boys in Bethlehem in an attempt to keep him from his throne. And in the book of Revelation, a great red dragon is pictured standing by Mary just waiting to devour her child. A similar thing took place in Ephesus. As the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing, as we've been studying the book of Acts, we've noted that Paul had been preaching and teaching there in Ephesus for over two years, and the darkness was being dispelled. Those who came into the light shared the light, so much so that Luke says everyone in Ephesus and the surrounding province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord, word that had been confirmed with miraculous signs leading believers and unbelievers alike to give up their pagan occult practices. Things were going so well, in fact, that Paul began to make plans to leave. We read of those plans in Acts 19, verses 21 and 22. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in his spirit, or in the spirit, to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Paul felt like things were pretty well wrapped up in Ephesus. The church was strong and the people were well taught. And he thought it was time to move on. When Luke says he purposed in the spirit, we can't be sure if he's saying Paul just decided within himself or that he was seeking the direction of the Holy Spirit, but no doubt he was laying his plans before the Lord. Now, the Holy Spirit had previously prohibited him from coming to Ephesus prematurely, and he surely didn't want to leave too early. But his plan was to go to Jerusalem, where he would deliver the offering he had received from Gentile Christians for the Jewish believers who had been devastated by famine. But he didn't want to leave the area before revisiting Macedonia and Achaia. He had written a couple of letters to the church in Corinth from Ephesus, expressing concern about their welfare, and, and he wanted to go personally to help them resolve some problems that existed there. And then after going to Jerusalem, he wanted to go on to Rome and encourage the Christians that many had not met in the capital city. And then according to his letter to the Romans, he wanted to get support from them to go on a missionary journey to Spain. He was a man with a lot of plans, a man who was committed to ministry. And while he was wrapping up some loose ends in Ephesus, he sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead to Macedonia. And it was during this time when he was kind of celebrating his successes that the forces of darkness 
openly rebelled against the light. And attempts were made to quench it. The enemy's first attempt came from those who began calculating the cost of allowing the light to shine. Verses 23 through 28. And about that time, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there the danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The light was shining in Ephesus, but not everyone was happy about it. Demetrius was a silversmith who made images of Artemis for pilgrims and and tourists who came to visit the temple, and this was big business in Ephesus. The temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was nearly 400 feet long and 200 feet wide, constructed of 120 60-foot marble pillars. The interior was decorated with gold and housed many beautiful paintings and sculptures. But the focus of the temple was the image of Artemis, a grotesque, black image of a multi-breasted goddess that was said to have fallen from heaven, perhaps a meteorite that had been fashioned into an image or one that merely looked like such. Well, it was this image that Demetrius reproduced in silver, and it was a good business until Paul came to town. You know, since his coming, the the market for images of Artemis had fallen like the image itself. And this, of course, worried Demetrius. So he gathered together the other craftsmen who made images and said, We've got to do something. Our livelihood is in jeopardy. Paul has killed the market for images. He says they aren't gods. And people aren't buying them. Now, it was true that people weren't buying the images. They had learned the truth about them. They had been brought into the light and had been delivered from the fear and superstition that idolatry thrives on. People's lives had been changed. They'd been freed from sin and spiritual bondage. And Demetrius could no doubt see that, but it didn't matter. Bottom line was that this new religion was costing him too much. And his fellow craftsmen could calculate the effect of Christianity on their pocketbook as well. 
you know, unless they could quench the light that was exposing their business for what it was, they were finished. So they united to fight the light. Now, they really didn't care about Artemis. If Paul had been preaching allegiance to another idol, they could have merely changed images. You know, another god wouldn't hurt them. In fact, it would have helped them. They could have sold new idols to everybody. But Paul wasn't preaching a pluralistic tolerance for the God of your choice. He was exposing false gods and preaching a God that demanded that darkness be renounced and idols abandoned. That many had to be silenced. But they were wise enough to realize they couldn't gain support for their crusade if the only reason for it was their loss of income. So they appealed to public sentiment. Unless we stop Paul, the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned. Well, people could rally around that. They could be duped into thinking they were fighting for a higher cause than the greed of the craftsmen. You know, like people today who believe they're fighting for a woman's right to control her body, when in reality they are being used to protect the financial interests of abortion providers, there are those who make a calculating attempt to quench the light because they know the truth is going to cost them too much. They're usually not great in number, but they can be very effective if they can confuse the masses. And that's what they did in Ephesus. Let's read on. And the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And also some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two Ours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The whole city was filled with confusion. People heard the shouting and a crowd gathered that turned into a mob as it made its way through the city streets to the theater, the 25,000-seat arena at the end of the Arcadian Way at the eastern edge of town. Along the way, the mob grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions. They couldn't find Paul, but when he heard what was happening, he wanted to head into the middle of the melee. His disciples, however, and even the local officials who befriended him, talked him out of it. The mob 
getting dangerous. Even the Jews were getting nervous. Their opposition to idols was no secret, but they didn't want to be implicated in this disturbance. So they prompted Alexander to, to stand up and make it clear that they were not the ones who were responsible for the riot. But the crowd refused to listen. They knew he was a Jew who didn't believe in Artemis. So they shouted all the more, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. They shouted, not even knowing why they were shouting. So it didn't matter. They were a mob, and mobs don't think. They just react. Personal responsibility gets thrown through the first window that's broken out, or so it's believed in the heat of the moment. Truth gets trampled under the feet of a mob. The light goes out when confusion reigns, and Satan knows it. So he uses confusion as a tool to quench the light. That, quite frankly, is why mob action is never of God. The crowd in Ephesus was crying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but the crusaders were shouting the name of Christ as they murdered, raped, and plundered for the glory of God. And if anyone tries to whip you into a frenzy, beware. Whether it's an athletic event, a political rally, or a religious crusade, mob activity leads to confusion, and confusion quenches the light of reason and revelation. The prince of darkness was pulling out all the stops. He had led Demetrius to calculate the cost of living in the light and confused the masses so much that they couldn't tell the darkness from the light. But he had one more trick up his sleeve, this one even more effective than the others. This one was a quieting attempt to quench the light. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair since... There is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we should be made unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed 
to go to Macedonia. Now, at first glance, it looks like the town clerk is the hero of this story. He steps into the middle of the mob and quiets everyone. As town clerk, he was the liaison between city administrators and and Rome. It was his job to keep everyone happy. And he knew how to do it. He diffused the situation by reminding the crowd that everyone knew Ephesus was guardian of the temple and that the great Artemis came to them from heaven. These, he asserted, were undeniable facts. Gaius and Aristarchus hadn't robbed the temple and they hadn't even blasphemed Artemis, so there was no need to get excited. If Demetrius and the other craftsmen had a legal claim against the Christians, they could take them to court. And if there were other issues that needed to be resolved, they could be resolved in an orderly manner using due process. It it wouldn't set well with Rome for the rioters to run the streets of Ephesus over some minor religious issue. With that, he dismissed the crowd and everyone went home. Again, it looks like he saved the day, doesn't it? In effect, he had said, just ignore it. What these Christians are saying doesn't make any difference. Everyone knows that they don't know what they're talking about. They're they're religious fanatics. Don't let them get you all riled up over nothing. Now, is this the way we want the world to react to our message? I don't think so. You know, the enemy knows if he can minimize our message and get people to dismiss it as inconsequential, it won't matter if the light is shining or not. No one will care. And no one will notice it. This, I believe, is the most prevalent tactic used today to quench the light. Just minimize the message. Now, who is it the media ignores in national debates on moral and ethical issues? It's the church. Unless, of course, it's being held up to ridicule. And if you happen to put together a panel of professors, politicians, and preachers, who gets dismissed as biased and out of touch? Well, it's the preachers, of course. And the spirit of the age says, don't get too excited about what the church has to say. Just ignore it and go back to the life that you've always known. What could be more effective in quenching the light As we've seen, our our job is to give disciples more light and to dispel darkness that pervades our world. But that job's not going to be easy, nor is it going to be without opposition. The forces of darkness will try to convince the world that the gospel is not worth the cost, Or we'll try to throw it in such confusion that it can't think clearly 
about the issues or will try to get the world to dismiss it as inconsequential. The best way for us to assure that the light still shines is to make sure we have counted the cost and found it worth it, to make sure that we keep our heads when those around us are losing theirs, and to make sure we understand just how relevant the Bible is to everyday life and let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In other words, we must surrender completely to the Lordship of Christ and let His light shine through us. And what better time to do it than to do it now, in the Christmas season, when God's light shines the brightest. Some might question that statement. I wrote it in later in my sermon. And I even questioned myself when I wrote it. Does the light really shine the brightest during Christmas? Well, yes and no. There's a lot of confusion out there of the purpose of Christmas, and we could all argue about wars on Christmas and yada, yada, yada. But this is still the time when the whole world, it seems, recognizes that a gift was given. 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, a light from God appeared that brought hope to mankind. The good news is endemic to the Christmas message. The light is out there, and it is being seen. Don't don't let anyone, let you just dismiss it as being, uh, it's just Christmas. And don't let the masses confuse you when they don't know what it's all about. And don't let the commercialism of Christmas throw you off and say, it's just not worth it. It's a hassle. There's so many elements out there that seem to fit in with this text. I I love it. You know me, I get stuck on a passage and I just stay with it. And I thought, is there a Christmas message here? And I'm going, yeah. Yeah, there is. We can stay the course because there are efforts Quench the light that Christmas brings. Let's do all we can to keep that light.